There is a passage of Scripture that I find myself going back to time and time again uh, because it is so very encouraging. It is encouraging in the sense that it gives us the opportunity to lift our eyes off the horizontal plane and put them on a vertical plane as a powerful reminder that God is the one who rules. God is the one who is in control. That text that I'm referring to is Acts chapter 12. So turn with me in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 12 for our time of studying God's precious word this morning. The fifth book of the New Testament after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. The book of Acts chapter 12. And please follow along as I read this chapter for us. Acts chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. This was written by Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, (coughs) and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord, And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their their country was supplied with food by the king's country. 
So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You may have noticed a common theme that runs through this chapter, but in case you didn't, let me spell it out for you. If there is one thing this chapter is saying, it is this. You can't stop the work of God. You can't stop the work of God. There are three different passages or sections that make up this chapter, and every one of them shouts that message. You cannot stop the work of God. Or, to say it another way, you can't beat God. Proverbs 21.30 says this, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. In other words, anyone who goes against God is a fool. The fool has said in his heart, no to God. That's one of the ways that verse could be translated, by the way. We usually read it as the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's a viable translation. But it could also read, the fool has said in his heart, no to God. Pharaoh tried to fight God and it cost him his honor, his people, his slaves, his army, his son, and his own life. King Ahab tried to fight God and the dogs ended up licking his blood. Here in Acts chapter 12, we are introduced to another king who tried to fight God and lost, which is always how it goes. So let's look at this chapter together. Back to verse 1. Luke tells us, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. The Herod mentioned here in verse 1 was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who ordered the babies in Bethlehem to be murdered about the time of Jesus, about the time of our Lord's birth. He was the grandfather of this man. Another relative that you might know from Scripture was Herod Antipas. The Herod here in verse 1 was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the man who had John the Baptist beheaded. So the Herod family was a scheming and murderous family that was hated by the Jewish populace. That's important background to this chapter because it tells us why Herod did what he did. He probably didn't have any particular hatred for Christians, but he decided to persecute the church so he could get on the good side of the Jewish people who were against the first century believers. To say it another way, Herod saw this as a way of earning brownie points with the Jewish people. So he decided to harass the church, verse 1 tells us. And then verse 2 says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was evidently the first one of the apostles to be martyred. All of them eventually were martyred, from best we can tell, with the exception of John. This verse says James was killed with the sword, which means he was beheaded. This mode of death was looked upon by the Jews as the most disgraceful way to die. The Talmud says this and tells us that this punishment 
was used in the case of someone who misled the people into worshiping false gods. Of course, that's the way the Jewish people viewed Christianity. They viewed it as the worship of a false god, namely Jesus. So this form of death was a statement death. It was a statement to that effect, and I'm sure it gained Herod some favor with the Jewish people who were against the first century believers. So James was murdered to promote an egomaniac's political career. That's what verse 2 is telling us. James and his brother John, you will remember, were the ones Jesus named sons of thunder. That means they were outspoken, bold men, so it shouldn't surprise us that, James, that Herod went after James first. When Herod wanted to stifle the church, the first person he went after was James. We would maybe think it would have been Peter. Go for the leader. Peter was the leader of the apostles. But Herod went for James. James was the biggest problem for this ungodly man. That tells you something about the impact of James's life. The way this chapter reads, it seems like Herod didn't even think about doing anything to Peter until he saw that it pleased the Jews when he beheaded James. So you could almost say, compared to James, Peter was mellow. The Lord Jesus had taken the zeal of James and molded him into a powerful vessel and instrument. We are told in historical tradition that as James was being led away to be beheaded, he displayed so much courage that the officer guarding him fell down at his feet, begging him for forgiveness of the rough treatment he had inflicted upon James. And as the story goes, James lifted him up, hugged him, and said, Peace, my son, peace be to you and the pardon of your faults. At that, the officer publicly confessed his surrender to Christ and was beheaded alongside of James. If that's an accurate historical account, it's an amazing story. James took someone with him when he went to heaven. Verse 3 tells us, Because Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Luke adds that note about the days of unleavened bread because it tells us why Peter wasn't executed immediately. Herod was going to wait until after the Jewish holidays so he could get their full attention to seek to win their favor. Favor. We learn from history that in order to secure the favor of the Jews, Herod tried to keep all of their laws. And one of their laws was that during this holiday, there could be no executions. So Herod complied to make the most of his sick popularity contest. Verse 4 tells us, So when he had arrested Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him intending to bring him before the people after Passover. By the way, this is, if we were reading through the book of Acts, this is the fourth time Peter was put in prison. He probably had a room with his name on it. But this go-around, he was guarded by four soldiers at a time. Two soldiers would be chained to him at all times. Two would guard the door. Herod took these extra precautions because earlier... When Peter and the apostles had been arrested, they had been released by an angel. So Herod wanted 
to make sure that wouldn't happen again. He didn't want to take any chances this time around. He wanted to make sure that Peter stayed put. But you can't beat God. You can't stop the work of God. 2 Timothy 2.9 says, The word of God is not bound. That is, by the way, one of the most common inscriptions in the catacombs in Rome, where many Christians had to hide out for years and years because of the persecution. And yet they reminded themselves and one another, the word of God is not bound. You can't chain up the Word of God and stop the work of God, which is what Herod was trying to do here. In essence, he was challenging God. This reminds me of the challenge King Nebuchadnezzar made to God when he told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he was going to cast them into the fiery furnace. And then he said this, Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? When you challenge God, you've met your match. Because you can't beat God. You can't stop the work of God. Verse 5 tells us Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This was something Herod hadn't taken into account. The church prayed. They didn't protest, they didn't politic, they prayed. The tenses of the verbs throughout this passage indicate that this this took place on a continual basis. And the the word that Luke uses here to describe their praying is not only a word of continuance, but a word of intensity. The people were very burdened for Peter's safety, so they prayed fervently. In fact, this word is the same word used to describe the praying of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's a strong word. If you've ever been burdened about something this strongly, you can understand the emotion of this text. These believers loved Peter very much. They didn't want to lose him. They didn't want the church to lose him. So they prayed fervently. If we look up other uses of this word, we find that as Christians, we are to be characterized by fervent prayer. That's this word fervent love and fervent service to the Lord. Verse 6 tells us, and when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping or guarding the prison. How could Peter be sleeping so soundly? After all, he knew that James had just been beheaded by this same wicked ruler. How could Peter have any peace of mind? I believe it was because he remembered what the Lord had told him in John chapter 21. Back up with me to the book just prior to the book of Acts, John chapter 21. This was after the resurrection as Jesus was, in essence, recommissioning Peter after Peter had fallen so drastically by his denials, he was ready to throw in the towel. So Jesus wanted to reaffirm Peter and recommission him. So they had a conversation as they walked together along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
We'll pick it up in chapter 21, verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. In other words, when you were younger, you would get dressed, go do whatever you wanted to do. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. That is an allusion to death by crucifixion. Stretching out of the hands, going where you don't want to go. That is, you'll be forced to die in this way. And John tells us in verse 19 with his editorial comment, This Jesus spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now notice what Jesus says here to Peter. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you. You see, Peter wasn't old yet in Acts chapter 12, so he knew it wasn't his time to go. Peter knew that Herod couldn't kill him yet, so he was calm and peaceful. But you know, it still, it still would have been a scary situation to be in. It easily could have caused Peter to question whether or not he had really understood what the Lord said to him here in John 21. Or it could have caused him to worry that, okay, well, he's not going to behead me because Jesus said, I'm going to die by crucifixion when I'm older, but maybe he's going to torture me. It would have been very easy to worry about that. But Peter practiced what he preached. In 1 Peter 5, 7, he said, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And that's what Peter was doing. Peter knew that the Lord cared, so he was able to sleep. The Lord gave him peace. But remember, as I've said many times in the past, the Lord doesn't give us this kind of grace until we need it. Then he gives it. And Peter had that grace. Even though he was arrested, facing execution, he was asleep. Now back to our text in Acts chapter 12. Verse 7 tells us that on this night... Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. God accepted Herod's challenge and sent an angel to deliver Peter. Peter was so sound asleep that the light that shone didn't even wake him, so the angel had to elbow Peter in the ribs to wake him up. And then verse 8 tells us, not only that, verse 8, Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Peter was so sleepy, he, he had to be awakened. And, and, and you can just see this. I am sure you can picture it in your mind. He's trying to scurry around. He's so sleepy, he probably put his sandals on the wrong feet. And the way this reads, he was about to go outside in his under tunic, of all things. So the angel told him to get dressed. Peter, you can't go outside in your underwear tunic. Come on. So he gets dressed, verse 9. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. You ever been like this? I'm sure you have. You are awakened suddenly for some reason, and you begin doing things, but you're not sure if you are awake or you're just dreaming. That's how Peter was, and it shows us how sound asleep he had been. Verse 10 tells us, 
When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. By the way, we know from history that this iron gate was so large, it took several men to open it. But the angel didn't even have to raise his hand or his wing, whichever the case may be. William Barclay, who sometimes has some great insights, says, and I quote, In this story, we do not necessarily see a miracle. It may well be the story of a thrilling rescue. Can you believe he would say that? How in the world can anyone miss the fact that God is telling about a miracle here? Think about the facts. An angel got by the two guards who were at the door and came right into Peter without the two guards who were chained to Peter, even knowing it, even though a light shone in the prison. Then the chains fell off Peter's hands without waking up the guards. The angel talked to Peter without waking up the guards. Peter got dressed and left without waking up the guards or without the other guards even noticing the iron gate opened of its own accord. This is clearly a miracle. And verse 11 says, when Peter had come to himself, when he finally woke up enough, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Peter finally woke up enough and became alert enough to realize what had happened. And the end of this verse tells us Peter knew what was behind Herod's plot. He knew Herod's motivation. He knew that it was the Jewish people who wanted this to happen, and Herod was basically going along with it just to get on their good side. The Jewish people were out to get Peter because they considered him to be a traitor. He was Jewish, and yet he believed Jesus was the Messiah. So the Jewish people were out to get him, and they tried to use Herod as a pawn. Verse 12 says, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. The John mentioned here in this verse is John Mark, the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament. John was his Hebrew name. Mark was his Gentile name. Mark's mother was evidently fairly wealthy. She had a large house for the church to be able to gather in, to meet in, to pray, and so that's where they were. Verse 13 tells us, as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now think about this story. Because Herod had decided he was going to begin persecuting the church, he already beheaded James, he already arrested Peter and was going to kill him, this knock at the door had to strike fear in the hearts of the believers. Think about if persecution breaks out, And you're with a group of believers at night somewhere in a room praying, and all of a sudden a knock comes at the door. Is this a soldier coming to arrest more? So Rhoda naturally would have asked who was knocking, and Peter would have answered. Verse 14 tells us, when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now, this is where the story really gets funny, and it's, it's intentionally recorded by the Holy Spirit. He records it all, not only for us to learn from historically, but also, I believe, for us to see ourselves and how ridiculous we can be at times. 
Verse 15 tells us, But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. The phrase beside yourself is the Greek word from which we get our English word maniac. They were saying to her, You are crazy, lady. You are outrageous. You're you're like a maniac. Now be quiet so we can pray. Heavenly Father, please release Peter from me. Can't you see this? These are great prayer warriors of faith. God got Peter out of prison, and now Peter can't even get into the prayer meeting. They thought it was Peter's angel, they said. They probably thought this was a guardian angel who had come to give the the church some news about Peter. Verse 16 tells us, Now Peter continued knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. You see, they had been praying in faith, believing, and that's why they're so astonished, right? Aren't you glad, beloved, that God is so good to answer our prayers even when we don't believe when we pray? I am, because I have to confess I don't always pray like I should. This is such an encouragement. These believers were burdened about the situation, so they took it to the Lord in prayer, but you get the impression by reading this that they didn't expect any kind of answer. They certainly didn't expect the kind of answer they got. They're astonished, surprised. And verse 17 tells us, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, this is Peter, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. The James mentioned here in this verse obviously isn't the James who was killed up in verse 2. This James was the half-brother of Jesus. The James in verse 2, remember, brother of John. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the letter that bears his name, and one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. So Peter instructed them to send someone to James to tell them the news, and then Peter left Because he knew that they would come looking for him there and he didn't want to jeopardize these believers. So Peter leaves and verse 18 says, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. Don't you love the way the Bible words things? My translation says there was no small disturbance, which is another way of saying there was pandemonium. I mean, there was bedlam. Where is this? Where is Peter? Our heads are on the, you know, the chopping block here. So there's this just stir of activity trying to figure out where Peter had gone. And verse 19 says, But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And Peter went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. By the way, do you ever... Stop to wonder why God allowed James to be killed but rescued Peter? After all, don't don't you think the church prayed for James as well as Peter? I mean, don't you think they prayed for James just like they prayed for Peter? Surely they did. Then why didn't God answer those prayers for James? The only answer is the sovereign will and purposes of God. Why does God do what he does? We'll never completely understand that this side of eternity. 
Look at the next book in the New Testament, the book of Romans chapter 11, for just a quick second. Romans chapter 11. Verse 33. Paul closes out this 11th chapter with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's the only answer for why God does what He does. So mark it well. It is the throne in heaven not the thrones on the earth that controls what goes on on this earth. Of that fact, we can be certain. It is the throne in heaven that controls what goes on in this earth, not the thrones on the earth. Now back to Acts chapter 12 in our text there. Notice how Dr. Luke closes out this chapter with another little snapshot or another little story, historical account. Verse 20 tells us, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. This is the same Herod mentioned back in verse 1. And other historical records outside of Scripture confirm exactly what Luke says here, which shouldn't surprise us. And not that we need the confirmation, but it is just fascinating to know that there are other historical records who say exactly what Luke says here in this section. There was some kind of conflict between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon, and as a result, Herod became very angry. That put the people of Tyre and Sidon in a very tenuous situation because their country was dependent on Herod for food and supplies. So the people got an inside track, and the implication of this verse is probably by bribing Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and by setting up some way to get back on the good side of the king. And since they knew Herod well, his ego and his pride... They knew they could get on his good side by flattering him, to butter him up. That's what they do. Verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. The Jewish historian Josephus says this took place during a festival honoring Claudius Caesar. And he tells us that the king wore a beautiful silver garment in honor of the occasion. This silver garment would have glistened in the sun and called great attention to Herod, which is exactly what he wanted. Now remember where this took place, Caesarea by the Sea. Several of you have been there. If you've been to Caesarea by the Sea, anytime I've ever been there over the last 20 years, the sun is always shining brilliantly right there beside the ocean. So picture Here he is in this silver garment, standing in some theater or some place at Caesarea by the sea with the sun 
shining off of the water, off of this silver garment, and it would call great attention to Herod. Verse 22 says, And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. So they played upon Herod's ego and told him he was a God, and he loved every minute of it. He accepted their flattery. But Herod evidently did not know or did not care about a verse in Isaiah where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. I mean, it's one thing to try to resist God and defeat God and stop the work of God like Herod had tried to do back in the early part of this chapter. That's one thing, but it's another thing to try to steal God's glory. That's even more serious. So verse 23 tells us, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Remember now, Luke, the author of this book, was a doctor, and he knew that this wasn't just a normal physical illness. This wasn't some sort of explainable physical ailment. This was the judgment of God. Josephus tells us that Herod was struck down while making the speech, just like we're told here, and he died after five days of suffering. Those five days were God's mercy to give him time to repent of his idolatry and pride, but we have no evidence in history that he did. Evidently, he died clenching his fist at God. But you can't beat God. Back up to Psalm 2 for just a moment. Back into Hebrew Scripture to the book of Psalms, the second Psalm. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's just let's somehow strip off all of these, you know, God's, God's requirements, God's cord, these things that are so binding to us. That's the way unbelievers look at the word of God. It's something that binds them and, you know, restricts them. Let's just throw all this stuff off. Get rid of it. God's response is, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. God's enemies are no match for God. When people try to defeat God, he just laughs because it's so ridiculous. But the fact that he laughs doesn't mean that he excuses people for their rebellion or sees it as a trivial thing, a light thing. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, And distress them in his deep displeasure. God takes this very seriously. People who try to fight God not only lose here and now, they will lose for eternity as they suffer the wrath of God forever. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. If you try to fight God, you're going to lose. Now back to our text in Acts chapter 12. Notice how Luke ends this chapter. 
chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. He says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. Mark that. No matter what people, rulers, try to do to stop the work of God, God will always see to it that every one of us has the opportunity to fulfill our ministry. There's no such thing in one sense as premature death. They fulfill their ministry. They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. But the key to this chapter is verse 24. The word of God grew and multiplied. In spite of all the efforts of Herod to stop it, in spite of all the efforts of the Jewish people who didn't believe the gospel, trying to stop it, the church just kept on growing. Lenski says, quote, That is the way in which the histories of the persecutions always end. That is the way in which the histories of the persecutions always end. Persecution always ends with God's word and work moving forward. H.L. Hastings said this about the Bible and about the work of God and about the church of God. I quote, Infidels for hundreds of years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of the infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. End quote. The church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. At the beginning of this chapter, from a human perspective, Herod seemed to be in control and the church was losing. James is beheaded. Peter is arrested. But here at the end of the chapter, Herod is dead. And the church is very much alive. Beloved, let this be a lesson to us. Even though it may seem that the wrong side is winning, God is still sovereign and he will accomplish his purposes. We need this reminder, especially in light of what's happening in our country today. We don't need to panic. America may go the rest of the way down the drain as a nation. But remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If we are working with the Lord to build his church here and around the world, we're on the winning side. Let's just remember to be faithful to the task that God has called us to. God will win. And so will we. Because you can't stop the work of God. Let's bow together in closing this morning. It is true 
that nothing or no one can stop the work of God. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So God's work will move forward. It will go forward. And that's one of the reasons why we should want to be a part of it. Because if we're a part of it, we're on the winning side, the winning team. Because no one can stop the work of God. People may resist it and try to thwart it, but ultimately you can't stop it. Now let me bring this down to a personal level. Maybe there's someone here this morning, or several someones, who is resisting not the work of God in the sense of you're trying to stop the, the spread of Scripture or whatever, but you're, you're resisting the work of God in your life. You know that you're not right with God, but you're unwilling to yield. You're unwilling to let go. Maybe you're a Christian. You're living the way, a way that you know the Lord would not want you to live, but you just keep pushing Him away. Or maybe you're not a child of God. You never surrendered your life to Christ. Either way, it's a foolish thing. It's a foolish thing to try to stiff-arm God, to try to push Him away. Let go now. Yield now. And turn to the Lord and surrender. Turn to the Lord in submission. And yield to Him your life. And Father, that is a challenge that we all need. Because even if we have come to the place in life where you have worked in our hearts to yield to the Lord Jesus, we still have self-will. We still have strong will. There are still times in life when we want our way. So we need this reminder. We need this challenge on a regular basis. We think of how Jesus said it, that if anyone wants to follow me, he needs to take up his cross needs to die to himself to follow me. And that is something we need to wrestle with on a constant basis, dying to self, to live the way the Lord Jesus wants us to live. In closing, Father, we pray for anyone here who does not know you as Father, who does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, as personal Lord and Savior. May you be pleased to use your word to use your spirit to stir their hearts so that today would be the day they would turn to Jesus Christ in simple, humble, childlike faith. And for those who are your people, accomplish in our hearts and our lives what you see is needed because you know us well. You know us perfectly. So stir our hearts in the direction you want us to be stirred and may we be quick to respond We ask all of this together in Jesus' precious name. Amen.